Book Two, Part Two of the Republic, by Plato. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Neufeld. Let us consider first of all what will be their way of life now that we have thus established them. Will they not produce corn and wine and clothes and shoes and build houses for themselves? and when they are housed they will work in summer commonly stripped and barefoot, but in winter substantially clothed and shod. They will feed on barley meal and flour of wheat, baking and kneading them, making noble cakes and loaves. These they will serve up on a mat of reeds or on clean leaves, themselves reclining the while upon beds strewn with yew or myrtle and they and their children will feast, drinking the wine which they have made, wearing garlands on their heads, and hymning the praises of the gods in happy converse with one another. And they will take care that their families do not exceed their means, having an eye to poverty or war. But, said Glaucon, interposing, you have not given them a relish to their meal. True, I replied, I had forgotten. Of course they must have a relish salt and olives and cheese and they will boil roots and herbs such as country people prepare for a dessert we shall give them figs and peas and beans and they will roast myrtle berries and acorns at the fire drinking in moderation and with such a diet they may be expected to live in peace and health to a good old age and bequeath a similar life to their children after them yes socrates he said and if you were providing for a city of pigs, how else would you feed the beasts? But what would you have, Glaucon? I replied. Why, he said, you should give them the ordinary conveniences of life. People who are to be comfortable are accustomed to lie on sofas and dine off tables, and they should have sauces and sweets in the modern style. Yes, I said. Now I understand. The question which you would have me consider is not only how a state, but how a luxurious state is created, and possibly there is no harm in this, for in such a state we shall be more likely to see how justice and injustice originate. In my opinion, the true and healthy constitution of a state is the one which I have described. But if you wish also to see a state at fever heat, I have no objection for I suspect that many will not be satisfied with a simpler way of life. They will be for adding sofas and tables and other furniture, also dainties and perfumes and incense and courtesans and cakes, all these not of one sort only, but in every variety. We must go beyond the necessaries of which I was at first speaking, such as houses and clothes and shoes, the arts of the painter and the embroiderer will have to be set in motion, and gold and ivory and all sorts of materials must be procured. True, he said. Then we must enlarge our borders, for the original healthy state is no longer sufficient. Now will the city have to fill and swell with a multitude of callings which are not required by any natural want, such as a whole tribe of hunters and actors of whom one large class have to do with forms and colours, another will be the votaries of music, poets, and their attendant train of rhapsodists, players, dancers, contractors, also makers of diverse kinds of articles, including women's dresses, and we shall want more servants, 
will not tutors be also in request and nurses wet and dry tire women and barbers as well as confectioners and cooks and swineherds too who were not needed and therefore had no place in the former edition of our state but are needed now they must not be forgotten and there will be animals of many other kinds if people eat them certainly and living in this way we shall have much greater need of physicians than before much greater and the country which was enough to support the original habitants will be too small now and not enough quite true then a slice of our neighbour's land will be wanted by us for pasture and tillage and they will want a slice of ours if like ourselves they exceed the limit of necessity and give themselves up to the unlimited accumulation of wealth that socrates will be inevitable and so we shall go to war glaucon shall we not most certainly he replied then without determining as yet whether war does good or harm this much we may affirm that now we have discovered war to be derived from causes which are also the causes of almost all the evils in states private as well as public undoubtedly and our state must once more enlarge and this time the enlargement will be nothing short of a whole army which will have to go out and fight with the invaders for all that we have as well as for the things and persons whom we were describing above why he said are they not capable of defending themselves no i said not if we were right in the principle which was acknowledged by all of us when we were framing the state the principle as you will remember was that one man cannot practise many arts with success very true he said but is not war an art certainly and an art requiring as much attention as shoemaking quite true and the shoemaker was not allowed by us to be a husbandman or a weaver or a builder in order that we might have our shoes well made but to him and to every other worker was assigned one work for which he was by nature fitted and at that he was to continue working all his life long and at no other he was not to let opportunities slip and then he would become a good workman now nothing can be more important than that the work of a soldier should be well done but is war an art so easily acquired that a man may be a warrior who is also a husbandman or shoemaker or other artisan although no one in the world would be a good dice or draught player who merely took up the game as a recreation and had not from his earliest years devoted himself to this and nothing else no tools will make a man a skilled workman or a master of defence nor be of any use to him who has not learned how to handle them and has never bestowed any attention upon them how then will he who takes up a shield or other implement of war become a good fighter all in a day whether with heavy armed or any other kind of troops yes he said the tools which would teach men their own use would be beyond price and the higher the duties of the guardian i said the more time and skill and art and application will be needed by him no doubt he replied will he not also require natural aptitude for his calling certainly then it will be our duty to select if we can natures which are fitted for the task of guarding the city it will and the selection will be no easy manner i said 
but we must be brave and do our best. We must. Is not the noble youth very like a well-bred dog in respecting of guarding and watching? What do you mean? I mean that both of them ought to be quick to see and swift to overtake the enemy when they see him, and strong too, if when they have caught him they have to fight with him. All these qualities, he replied, will certainly be required by them. Well, and your guardian must be brave if he is to fight well, certainly. And is he likely to be brave who has no spirit, whether horse or dog or any other animal? Have you never observed how invincible and unconquerable is spirit, and how the presence of it makes the soul of any creature to be absolutely fearless and indomitable? I have. Then now we have a clear notion of the bodily qualities which are required in the guardian. True, and also of the mental ones. His soul is to be full of spirit. Yes. But are not these spirited natures apt to be savage with one another and with everybody else? A difficulty by no means easy to overcome, he replied. Whereas, I said, they ought to be dangerous to their enemies and gentle to their friends. If not, they will destroy themselves without waiting for their enemies to destroy them. True, he said. What is to be done, then? I said. How shall we find a gentle nature which has also a great spirit, for the one is the contradiction of the other? True. He will not be a good guardian who is wanting in either of these two qualities, and yet the combination of them appears to be impossible, and hence we must infer that to be a good guardian is impossible. I am afraid that what you say is true, he replied. Here, feeling perplexed, I began to think over what had preceded. My friend, I said, no wonder that we are in a perplexity, for we have lost sight of the image which we had before us. Oh, what do you mean? he said. I mean to say that there do exist natures gifted with these opposite qualities. And where do you find them? Many animals, I replied, furnish examples of them. Our friend the dog is a very good one. You know that well-bred dogs are perfectly gentle to their familiars and acquaintances, and the reverse to strangers. Yes, I know. Then there is nothing impossible or out of order of nature in our finding a guardian who has a similar combination of qualities? Certainly not. What? Would not he who is fitted to be a guardian, besides the spirited nature, need to have the qualities of a philosopher? I do not apprehend your meaning. The trait of which I am speaking, I replied, may also be seen in the dog, and is remarkable in the animal. What trait? Why, a dog, whenever he sees a stranger, is angry. When an acquaintance, he welcomes him, although the one has never done him any harm, nor the other any good. Did this never strike you as curious? The matter never struck me before, but I quite recognize the truth of your remark. And surely this instinct of the dog is very charming. Your dog is a true philosopher. Why? Why, because he distinguishes the face of a friend and of an enemy only by the criterion of knowing and not knowing. And must not an animal be a lover of learning who determines what he likes and dislikes by the test of knowledge and ignorance? Most assuredly. And is not the love of learning the love of wisdom, which is philosophy? 
they are the same he replied and may we not say confidently of man also that he who is likely to be gentle to his friends and acquaintances must by nature be a lover of wisdom and knowledge that we may safely affirm then he who has to be a really good and noble guardian of the state will require to unite in himself philosophy and spirit and swiftness and strength undoubtedly then we have found the desired natures and now that we have found them how are they to be reared and educated is not this an inquiry which may be expected to throw light on the greater inquiry which is our final end how do justice and injustice grow up in states for we do not want either to omit what is to the point or to draw out the argument to an inconvenient length adamant has thought that the inquiry would be of great service to us then i said my dear friend the task must not be given up even if somewhat long certainly not come then and let us pass a leisure hour in story-telling and our story shall be the education of our heroes by all means and what shall be their education can we find a better than the traditional sort and this has two divisions gymnastic for the body and music for the soul true shall we begin education with music and go on to gymnastics afterwards by all means and when you speak of music do you include literature or not i do and literature may be either true or false yes and the young shall be trained in both kinds and we begin with the false i do not understand your meaning he said you know i said that we begin by telling children stories which though not wholly destitute of truth are in the main fictitious and these stories are told them when they are not of an age to learn gymnastics very true that was my meaning when i said that we must teach music before gymnastics quite right he said you know also that the beginning is the most important part of any work especially in the case of a young and tender thing for that is the time at which the character is being formed and the desired impression is more readily taken quite true and shall we just carelessly allow children to hear any casual tales which may be devised by casual persons and to receive into their minds ideas for the most part the very opposite of those which we should wish them to have when they are grown up we cannot then the first thing will be to establish a censorship of the writers of fiction and let the censors receive any tale of fiction which is good and reject the bad and we will desire mothers and nurses to tell their children the authorized ones only let them fashion the mind with such tales even more fondly than they mould the body with their hands but most of those which are now in use must be discarded of what tales are you speaking he said you may find a model of the lesser in the greater i said for they are necessarily of the same type and there is the same spirit in both of them very likely he replied but i do not as yet know what you would term the greater those i said which are narrated by homer and hesiod and the rest of the poets which have ever been the great story-tellers of mankind but which stories do you mean he said and what fault do you find with them a fault which is most serious i said the fault of telling a lie and what is more a bad lie but when is this fault committed 
whenever an erroneous representation is made of the nature of gods and heroes, as when a painter paints a portrait not having the shadow of a likeness to the original. Yes, he said, that sort of thing is certainly very blamable, but what are the stories which you mean? Well, first of all, I said, there was that greatest of all lies in high places which the poet told to Uranus, which was a bad lie too. I mean what Hesiod says that Uranus did, and how Cronus retaliated on him. The doings of Cronus and the sufferings which in turn his son inflicted upon him, even if they were true, ought certainly not to be lightly told to young and thoughtless persons. If possible, they had better be buried in silence. But if there is an absolute necessity for their mention, a chosen few might hear them in a mystery, and they should sacrifice not a common pig, but some huge and unprocurable victim, and then the numbers of the hearers will be very few indeed. Why, yes, said he, those stories are extremely objectionable. Yes, Adamantus, they are stories not to be repeated in our state. The young man should not be told that in committing the worst of crimes he is far from doing anything outrageous, and that even if he chastises his father when he does wrong, in whatever manner, he will only be following the example of the first and greatest among the gods. I certainly agree with you, he said. In my opinion, those stories are quite unfit to be repeated. Neither, if we mean our future guardians to regard their habit of quarrelling among themselves as of all things the basest, should any word be said to them of the wars in heaven, and of the plots and fightings of the gods against one another, for they are not true. No, we shall never mention the battles of the giants, or let them be embroidered on garments, and we shall be silent about the innumerable other quarrels of gods and heroes with their friends and relatives. If they would only believe us, we would tell them that quarrelling is unholy, and that never up to this time has there been any quarrel between citizens. This is what old men and old women should begin by telling children, and when they grow up, the poets also should be told to compose for them in the similar spirit. But the narrative of Hephaestus binding here his mother, or how on another occasion Zeus sent him flying for taking her part when she was being beaten, and all the battles of the gods in Homer, these tales must not be admitted into our state, whether they are supposed to have an allegorical meaning or not. For a young person cannot judge what is allegorical and what is liberal. Anything that he receives into his mind at that age is likely to become indelible and unalterable and therefore it is most important that the tales which the young first hear should be models of virtuous thoughts. "'There you are right,' he replied. "'But if any one asks where are such models to be found, and of what tales are you speaking, how shall you answer him?' I said to him, "'You and I, Adamantus, at this point are not poets, but founders of a state.' Now, the founders of a state ought to know the general forms in which poets should cast their tales, and the limits which must be observed by them, but to make the tales is not their business. Very true, he said, but what are these forms of theology which you mean? Something of this kind, I replied. God is always to be represented as he truly is, whatever be the sort of poetry, epic, lyric, or tragic, in which the representation is given. Right. 
and is he not truly good and must he not be represented as such certainly and no good thing is hurtful no indeed and that which is not hurtful hurts not certainly not and that which hurts not does no evil no and can that which does no evil be a cause of evil impossible and the good is advantageous yes and therefore the cause of well-being yes it follows therefore that the good is not the cause of all things but of the good only assuredly then god if he be good is not the author of all things as the many assert but he is the cause of a few things only and not of most things that occur to men for few are the goods of human life and many are the evils and the good is to be attributed to god alone of the evils the causes are to be sought elsewhere and not in him that appears to me to be most true he said then we must not listen to homer or to any other poet who is guilty of the folly of saying that two casks lie at the threshold of zeus full of lots one of good the other of evil lots and that he to whom zeus gives a mixture of the two sometimes meets with ill fortune at other times with good but to he to whom is given the cup of unmingled ill him wild hunger drives o'er the beauteous earth and again zeus who is the dispenser of good and evil to us and if any one asserts that the violation of oaths and treaties which was really the work of pandarus was brought about by athene and zeus or that the strife and contention of the gods was instigated by themis and zeus he shall not have our approval neither will we allow our young men to hear the words of aeschylus that god plants guilt among men when he desires utterly to destroy a house and if a poet writes of the sufferings of niobethe the subject of the tragedy in which these iambic verses occur or of the house of pelops or of the trojan war or any similar theme either we must not permit him to say that these are not the works of god or if they are god he must devise some explanation of them such as we are seeking he must say that god did what was just and right and they were the better for being punished but that those who are punished are miserable and that god is the author of their misery the poet is not to be permitted to say though he may say that the wicked are miserable because they require to be punished and are benefited by receiving punishment from god but that god being good is the author of evil to any one is to be strenuously denied and not to be said or sung or heard in verse or prose by any one whether old or young in any well-ordered commonwealth such a fiction is suicidal ruinous impious i agree with you he replied and i am ready to give my assent to the law let this then be one of our rules and principles concerning the gods to which our poets and reciters will be expected to conform that god is not the author of all things but of good only that will do he said and what do you think of a second principle shall i ask you whether god is a magician and of a nature to appear insidiously now in one shape and now in another sometimes himself changing and passing into many forms sometimes deceiving us with the semblance of such transformations or is he one and the same immutably fixed in his own proper image i cannot answer you 
he said, without more thought. Well, I said, but if we suppose a change in anything, that that change must be effected either by the thing itself or by some other thing? Most certainly. And things which are at their best are also least liable to be altered or discomposed. For example, when healthiest and strongest, the human frame is least liable to be affected by meats and drinks, and the plant, which is in the fullest vigor, also suffers least from winds, or the heat of the sun, or any similar causes. Of course. And will not the bravest and wisest soul be least confused or deranged by any external influence? True. And the same principle, as I should suppose, applies to all composite things, furniture, houses, garments, when good and well made, they are least altered by time and circumstances. Very true. Then everything which is good, whether made by art or nature, or both, is least liable to suffer change from without. True. But surely God and the things of God are in every way perfect. Of course they are. Then he can hardly be compelled by external influence to take many shapes. He cannot. But may he not change and transform himself? Clearly, he said, that must be the case if he is changed at all. And will he then change himself for the better and fairer, or for the worse and more unsightly? If he change at all, he can only change for the worse, for we cannot suppose him to be deficient either in virtue or beauty. Very true, Atamantus. But then would any one, whether God or man, desire to make himself worse? Impossible. Then it is impossible that God should ever be willing to change, being, as is supposed, the fairest and best that is conceivable. Every God remains absolutely and forever in his own form. That necessarily follows, he said, in my judgment. Then, I said, my dear friend, let none of the poets tell us that the gods, taking the disguise of strangers from other lands, walk up and down cities in all sorts of forms and let no one slander Proteus and Thetis, neither let any one, either in tragedy or in any other kind of poetry, introduce Hera disguised in the likeness of a priestess asking an alms for the life-giving daughters of Inachus, the river of Argus. Let us have no more lies of that sort. Neither must we have mothers under the influence of the poets scaring their children with a bad version of these myths, telling our certain gods, as they say, go about by night in the likeness of so many strangers and in diverse forms. But let them take heed, lest they make cowards of their children, and at the same time speak blasphemy against the gods. Heaven forbid, he said. But although the gods are themselves unchangeable, still by witchcraft and deception they may make us think that they appear in various forms. Perhaps, he replied, well, but can you imagine that God will be willing to lie, whether in word or deed, or put forth a phantom of himself? I cannot say, he replied. Do you not know, I said, that the true lie, if such an expression may be allowed, is hated of gods and men? What do you mean? he said. I mean that no one is willingly deceived in that which is the truest and highest part of himself, about the truest and highest matters. There, above all, he is most afraid of a lie having possession of him. Still, he said, I do not comprehend you. 
the reason is i replied that you attribute some profound meaning to my words but i am only saying that deception or being deceived or uninformed about the highest realities and the highest part of themselves which is the soul and in that part of them to have and to hold the lie is what mankind least like that i say is what they utterly detest there is nothing more hateful to them and as i was just now remarking this ignorance in the soul of him who is deceived may be called the true lie for the lie in words is only a kind of imitation and shadowy image of a previous affection of the soul not pure unadulterated falsehood am i not right perfectly right the true lie is hated not only by the gods but also by men yes whereas the lie in words is in certain cases useful and not hateful in dealing with enemies that would be an instance or again when those whom we call our friends in a fit of madness or illusion are going to do some harm then it is useful and is a sort of medicine or preventive also in the tales of mythology of which we were just now speaking because we do not know the truth about ancient times we make falsehood as much like truth as we can and so turn it into account very true he said but can any of these reasons apply to god can we suppose that he is ignorant of antiquity and therefore has recourse to invention that would be ridiculous he said then the lying poet has no place in our idea of god i should say not or perhaps he may tell a lie because he is afraid of enemies that is inconceivable but he may have friends who are senseless or mad but no mad or senseless person can be a friend of god then no motive can be imagined why god should lie none whatever then the superhuman and divine is absolutely incapable of falsehood yes then is god perfectly simple and true both in word and deed he changes not he deceives not either by sign or word by dream or waking vision your thoughts he said are the reflection of my own you agree with me then i said that this is the second type or form in which we should write and speak about divine things the gods are not magicians who transform themselves neither do they deceive mankind in any way i grant that then although we are admirers of homer we do not admire the lying dream which zeus sends to agamemnon neither will we praise the verses of aeschylus in which thetis says that apollo at her nuptials was celebrating in song fair progeny whose days were to be long and to know no sickness and when he had spoken of my lot as in all things blessed of heaven he raised a note of triumph and cheered my soul and i thought that the word of phoebus being driven and full of prophecy would not fail and now he himself who uttered the strain he who was present at the banquet and who said this he it is who has slain my son these are the kind of sentiments about the gods which will arouse our anger and he who utters them shall be refused a chorus neither shall we allow teachers to make use of them in the instruction of the young meaning as we do that our guardians as far as men can be should be true worshippers of the gods and like them i entirely agree he said in these principles and promise to make them my laws 
End of part two. Book three, part one, from the Republic by Plato. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Neufeld. Such, then, I said, are our principles of theology. Some tales are to be told, and others are not to be told to our disciples from their youth upwards, if we mean them to honor the gods and their parents, and to value friendship with one another. Yes, and I think that our principles are right, he said. But if they are to be courageous, must they not learn other lessons besides these, and lessons of such a kind as will take away the fear of death? Can any man be courageous who has the fear of death in him? Certainly not, he said. And can he be fearless of death, or will he choose death in battle rather than defeat and slavery, who believes the world below to be real and terrible? impossible then we must assume a control over the narrators of this class of tales as well as over the others and beg them not simply to revile but rather to commend the world below intimating to them that their descriptions are untrue and will do harm to our future warriors that will be our duty he said then i said we shall have to obliterate many obnoxious passages beginning with the verses I would rather be a serf on the land of a poor and portionless man than rule over the dead who have come to naught. We must also expunge the verse, which tells us how Pluto feared, lest the mansions grim and squalid which the gods abhor should be seen both of mortals and immortals. And again, O oh heavens, verily in the house of Hades there is soul and ghostly form, but no mind at all. Again of Tiresias. To him, even after death, did Persephone grant mind that he alone should be wise, but the other souls are flitting shades. Again, the soul flying from the limbs had gone to Hades, lamenting her fate, leaving manhood and youth. Again, and the soul, with shrilling cry, passed like smoke beneath the earth. And, as bats in hollow of mystic cavern whenever any of them has dropped out of the string and falls from the rock fly shrilling and cling to one another so did they with shrilling cry hold together as they moved and we must beg homer and the other poets not to be angry if we strike out these and similar passages not because they are unpoetical or unattractive to the popular ear but because the greater the poetical charm of them the less are they meet for the ears of boys and men who are meant to be free, and who should fear slavery more than death. Undoubtedly. Also, we shall have to reject all the terrible and appalling names which describe the world below, Cocytus and Styx, Ghost under the Earth, and Sapless Shades, and any similar words of which the very mention causes a shudder to pass through the inmost soul of him who hears them i do not say that these horrible stories may not have a use of some kind but there is a danger that the nerves of our guardians may be rendered too excitable and effeminate by them there is a real danger he said then we must have no more of them true another and a nobler strain must be composed and sung by us clearly and shall we proceed to get rid of the weepings and wailings of famous men they will go with the rest 
but shall we be right in getting rid of them? Reflect. Our principle is that the good man will not consider death terrible to any other good man who is his comrade. Yes, that is our principle, and therefore he will not sorrow for his departed friend as though he had suffered anything terrible. He will not. Such an one, as we further maintain, is sufficient for himself and his own happiness, and therefore is least in need of other men. True, he said. And for this reason the loss of a son or brother, or the deprivation of fortune, is to him of all men least terrible. Assuredly. And therefore he will be least likely to lament, and will bear with the greatest equanimity any misfortune of this sort which may befall him. Yes, he will feel such a misfortune far less than another. Then we shall be right in getting rid of the lamentations of famous men, and making them over to women, and not even to women who are good for anything, or to men of a baser sort, that those who are being educated by us to be the defenders of their country may scorn to do the like. That will be very right. Then we will once more entreat Homer and the other poets to depict Achilles, who is the son of a goddess, first lying on his side, then on his back, and then on his face, then starting up and sailing in a frenzy along the shores of the barren sea, now taking the sooty ashes in both his hands and pouring them over his head, or weeping and wailing in the various modes which Homer has delineated. Nor should he describe Priam, the kinsman of the gods, as praying and beseeching, rolling in the dirt, calling each man loudly by his name. Still more earnestly will we beg of him, at all events, not to introduce the gods lamenting, and saying, Alas, my misery, alas, that I bore the bravest to my sorrow. But he must introduce the gods, at any rate let him dare not so completely to misrepresent the greatest of the gods, as to make him say, O oh, heavens, with my eyes verily I behold a dear friend of mine chased round and round the city, and my heart is sorrowful. Or again, Woe is me that I am fated to have Sarpedon, dearest of men to me, subdued at the hands of Patroclus and the son of Menetius. For if, my sweet Arimantus, our youth seriously listened to such unworthy representations of the gods, instead of laughing at them as they ought, hardly will any of them deem that he himself, being but a man, can be dishonoured by similar actions. Neither will he rebuke any inclination which may arise in his mind to say and do the like. And instead of having any shame or self-control, he will be always whining and lamenting on slight occasions. Yes, he said, that is most true. Yes, I replied. But that surely is what ought not to be, as the argument has just proved to us, and by that proof we must abide until it is disproved by a better. It ought not to be. Neither ought our guardians to be given to laughter, for a fit of laughter which has been indulged to excess almost always produces a violent reaction. So I believe. Then persons of worth, even if only mortal men, must not be represented as overcome by laughter, and still less must such a representation of the gods be allowed. Still less of the gods, as you say, he replied. Then we shall not suffer such an expression to be used against the gods, 
as that of homer when he describes how inextinguishable laughter arose among the blessed gods when they saw hephaestus bustling about the mansion on your views we must admit them on my views if you like to father them on me that we must not admit them is certain again truth should be highly valued if as we were saying a lie is useless to the gods and useful only as a medicine to men then the use of such medicines should be restricted to physicians private individuals have no business with them clearly not he said then if any one at all is to have the privilege of lying the rulers of the state should be the persons and they in their dealings either with enemies or with their own citizens may be allowed to lie for the public good but nobody else should meddle with anything of the kind and although the rulers have this privilege for a private man to lie to them in return is to be deemed a more heinous fault than for the patient or the pupil of a gymnasium not to speak about his own bodily illnesses to the physician or to the trainer or for a sailor not to tell the captain what is happening about the ship and the rest of the crew and how things are going with himself or his fellow-sailors most true he said if then the ruler catches anybody beside himself lying in the state any of the craftsmen whether he be priest or physician or carpenter he will punish him for introducing a practice which is equally subversive and destructive of ship or state most certainly he said if our idea of the state is ever carried out in the next place our youth must be temperate certainly are not the chief elements of temperance speaking generally obedience to commanders and self-control in sensual pleasures true then we shall approve such language as that of diomede in homer friend sit still and obey my word and the verses which follow the greeks marched breathing prowess in silent awe of their leaders and other sentiments of the same kind we shall what of this line oh heavy with wine who hast the eyes of a dog and the heart of a stag and of the words which follow would you say that these or any similar impertinences which private individuals are supposed to address to their rulers whether in verse or prose are well or ill-spoken they are ill-spoken they may very possibly afford some amusement but they do not conduce to temperance and therefore they are likely to do harm to our young men you would agree with me there yes and then again to make the wisest of men say that nothing in his opinion is more glorious than when the tables are full of bread and meat and the cup-bearer carries round wine which he draws from the bowl and pours into the cups is it fit or conducive to temperance for a young man to hear such words or the verse the saddest of fates is to die and meet destiny from hunger what would you say again to the tale of zeus who while other gods and men were asleep and he the only person awake lay devising plans but forgot them all in a moment through his lust and was so completely overcome at the sight of hera that he would not even go into the hut but wanted to lie with her on the ground declaring that he had never been in such a state of rapture before even when they first met one another without the knowledge of their parents or that other tale of how hephaestus because of similar goings-on cast a chain around ares and aphrodite 
Indeed, he said, I am strongly of opinion that they ought not to hear that sort of thing. But any deeds of endurance which are done or told by famous men, these they ought to see and hear, as, for example, what is said in the verses, He smote his breast, and thus reproached his heart, Endure, my heart, far worse hast thou endured. Certainly, he said, and in the next place, we must not let them be receivers of gifts or lovers of money. Certainly not. Neither must we sing to them of gifts persuading gods and persuading reverend kings. Neither is Phoenix, the tutor of Achilles, to be approved or deemed to have given his pupil good counsel when he told him he should take the gifts of the Greeks and assist them, but that without a gift he should not lay aside his anger. Neither will we believe or acknowledge Achilles himself to have been such a lover of money that he took Agamemnon's gifts, or that when he had received payment he restored the dead body of Hector, but that without payment he was unwilling to do so. Undoubtedly, he said, these are not sentiments which can be approved. Loving Homer as I do, I hardly like to say that in attributing these feelings to Achilles, or in believing that they are truly attributed to him, he is guilty of downright impiety, as little can I believe the narrative of his insolence to Apollo, where he says, Thou hast wronged me, O far-darter, most abominable of deities. Verily I would be even with thee, if I only had the power. Or his insubordination to the river-god, on whose divinity he is ready to lay hands, or his offering to the dead Patroclus of his own hair, which had been previously dedicated to the river-god Spercaius, and that he actually performed this vow, or that he dragged Hector round the tomb of Patroclus, and slaughtered the captives at the pyre. Of all this I cannot believe that he was guilty, any more than I can allow our citizens to believe that he, the wise Chiron's pupil, the son of a goddess and Peleus, who was the gentlest of men, and third in descent from Zeus, was so disordered in his wits as to be at one time the slave of two seemingly inconsistent passions, meanness not untainted by avarice, combined with overweening contempt of gods and men. You are quite right, he replied, and let us equally refuse to believe, or allow to be repeated, the tale of Theseus, son of Poseidon, or of Pyrethus, son of Zeus, going forth as they did to perpetuate a horrid rape or of any other hero or son of a god daring to do such impious and dreadful things as they falsely ascribe to them in our day. And let us further compel the poets to declare either that these acts were not done by them, or that they were not the sons of gods. Both in the same breath they shall not be permitted to affirm. We will not have them trying to persuade our youth that the gods are the authors of evil, and that heroes are no better than men, sentiments which, as we were saying, are neither pious nor true, for we have already proved that evil cannot come from the gods, assuredly not, and further they are likely to have a bad effect on those who hear them, for everybody will begin to excuse his own vices when he is convinced that similar wickednesses are always being perpetrated by the kindred of the gods, the relatives of Zeus, whose ancestral altar, the altar of Zeus, is aloft in air on the peak of Ida, and who have the blood of deities yet flowing in their veins. 
and therefore let us put an end to such tales, lest they engender laxity of morals among the young. By all means, he replied. But now that we are determining what classes of subjects are or are not to be spoken of, let us see whether any have been omitted by us. The manner in which gods and demigods and heroes and the world below should be treated has been already laid down. Very true. And what shall we say about men? That is clearly the remaining portion of our subject. Clearly so. But we are not in a condition to answer this question at present, my friend. Why not? Because, if I am not mistaken, we shall have to say that about men poets and storytellers are guilty of making the gravest misstatements when they tell us that wicked men are often happy and the good miserable and that the injustice is profitable when undetected, but that justice is a man's own loss and another's gain. These things we shall forbid them to utter, and command them to sing and say the opposite. To be sure we shall, he replied. But if you admit that I am right in this, then I shall maintain that you have implied the principle for which we have been all along contending. I grant the truth of your inference that such things are or are not to be said about men is a question which we cannot determine until we have discovered what justice is and how naturally advantageous to the possessor whether he seemed to be just or not most true he said enough of the subjects of poetry let us now speak of the style and when this has been considered both matter and manner will have been completely treated i do not understand what you mean said adeimantus then i must make you understand and perhaps i may be more intelligible if i put the matter in this way you are aware i suppose that all mythology and poetry is a narration of events either past present or to come certainly he replied and narration may be either simple narration or imitation or a union of the two that again he said i do not quite understand i fear that i must be a ridiculous teacher when i have so much difficulty in making myself apprehended like a bad speaker therefore i will not take the whole of the subject but will break a piece off in illustration of my meaning you know the first lines of the iliad in which the poet says that crises prayed agamemnon to release his daughter and that Agamemnon flew into a passion with him, whereupon Chryses, failing of his object, invoked the anger of the god against the Achaeans. Now, as far as these lines, and he prayed all the Greeks, but especially the two sons of Atreus, the chiefs of the people, the poet is speaking in his own person. He never leads us to suppose that he is anyone else but in what follows he takes the person of crises and then he does all that he can to make us believe that the speaker is not homer but the aged priest himself and in this double form he has cast the entire narrative of the events which occurred at troy and in ithaca and throughout the odyssey which occurred at troy and in ithaca and throughout the odyssey yes and a narrative it remains both in the speeches which the poet recites from time to time and in the intermediate passages quite true but when the poet speaks in the person of another may we not say that he assimilates his style to that of a person 
who as he informs you is going to speak certainly and this assimilation of himself to another either by the use of voice or gesture is the imitation of the person whose character he assumes of course then in this case the narrative of the poet may be said to proceed by way of imitation very true or if the poet everywhere appears and never conceals himself then again the imitation is dropped and his poetry becomes simple narration however in order that i may make my meaning quite clear and that you may no more say i don't understand i will show how the change might be effected if homer had said the priest came having his daughter's ransom in his hands supplicating the achaeans and above all the kings and then if instead of speaking in the person of crises he had continued in his own person the words would have been not imitation but simple narration the passage would have run as follows i am no poet and therefore i drop the meter a priest came and prayed the gods on behalf of the greeks that they might capture troy and return safely home but begged that they would give him back his daughter and take the ransom which he brought and respect the god thus he spoke and the other greeks revered the priest and assented but agamemnon was wroth and bade him depart and not come again lest the staff and chaplets of the god should be of no avail to him the daughter of Chryses should not be released he said she should grow old with him in argos and then he told him to go away and not to provoke him if he intended to get home unscathed and the old man went away in fear and silence and when he had left the camp he called upon apollo by his many names reminding him of everything which he had done pleasing to him whether in building his temples or in offering sacrifice and praying that his good deeds might be returned to him and that the achaeans might expiate his tears by the arrows of the god and so on in this way the whole becomes simple narrative i understand he said or you may suppose the opposite case that the intermediate passages are omitted and the dialogue only left that also he said i understand you mean for example as in tragedy you have conceived my meaning perfectly and if i mistake not what you failed to apprehend before is now made clear to you that poetry and mythology are in some cases wholly imitative instances of this are supplied by tragedy and comedy there is likewise the opposite style in which the poet is the only speaker of this the dithyram affords the best example and the combination of both is found in epic and in several other styles of poetry do i take you with me yes he said i see now what you meant i will ask you to remember also what i began by saying that we had done with the subject and might proceed to the style yes i remember in saying this i intended to imply that we must come to an understanding about the mimetic art about the mimetic art whether the poets in narrating their stories are to be allowed by us to imitate and if so whether in whole or in part and if the latter in what parts or should all imitation be prohibited you mean i suspect to ask whether tragedy and comedy shall be admitted into our state yes i said but there may be more than this in question 
i really do not know as yet but whither the argument may blow thither we go and go we will he said then adamantus let me ask you whether our guardians ought to be imitators or rather has not this question been decided by the rule already laid down that one man can only do one thing well and not many and that if he attempt many he will altogether fail of gaining much reputation in any certainly and this is equally true of imitation no man can imitate many things as well as he would imitate a single one he cannot then the same person would hardly be able to play a serious part in life and at the same time to be an imitator and imitate many other parts as well for even when two species of imitation are nearly allied the same person cannot succeed in both as for example the writers of tragedy and comedy did you not just now call them imitations ah yes i did and you were right in thinking that the same persons cannot succeed in both any more than they can be rhapsodists and actors at once true neither are comic and tragic actors the same yet all these things are but imitations they are so and human nature adamantus appears to have been coined into yet smaller pieces and to be as incapable of imitating many things well as of performing well the actions of which the imitations are copies quite true he replied if then we adhere to our original notion and bear in mind that our guardians setting aside every other business are to dedicate themselves wholly to the maintenance of freedom in the state making this their craft and engaging in no work which does not bear on this end they ought not to practise or imitate anything else if they imitate at all they should imitate from youth upward only those characters which are suitable to their profession the courageous temperate holy free and the like but they should not depict or be skilful at imitating any kind of illiberality or baseness lest from imitation they should come to be what they imitate did you never observe how imitations beginning in early youth and continuing far into life at length grow into habits and become a second nature affecting body voice and mind yes certainly he said then i said we will not allow those for whom we profess a care and of whom we say that they ought to be good men to imitate a woman whether young or old quarrelling with her husband or striving and vaunting against the gods in conceit of her happiness or when she is in affliction or sorrow or weeping and certainly not one who is in sickness love or labour very right he said neither must they represent slaves male or female performing the offices of slaves they must not and surely not bad men whether cowards or any others who do the reverse of what we have just been prescribing who scold or mock or revile one another in drink or out of drink or who in any other manner sin against themselves and their neighbours in word or deed as the manner of such is neither should they be trained to imitate the action or speech of men or women who are mad or bad for madness like vice is to be known but not to be practised or imitated very true he replied neither may they imitate smiths or other artificers or oarsmen or boatswains or the like how can they he said when they are not allowed to apply their minds to the callings of any of these 
nor may they imitate the neighing of horses the bellowing of bulls the murmur of rivers and roll of the ocean thunder and all that sort of thing nay he said if madness be forbidden neither may they copy the behaviour of madmen you mean i said if i understand you aright that there is one sort of narrative style which may be employed by a truly good man when he has anything to say and that another sort will be used by a man of an opposite character and education and which are these two sorts he asked suppose i answered that a just and good man in the course of a narration comes on some saying or action of another good man i should imagine that he will like to personate him and will not be ashamed of this sort of imitation he will be most ready to play the part of a good man when he is acting firmly and wisely in a less degree when he is overtaken by illness or love or drink or has met with any other disaster but when he comes to a character which is unworthy of him he will not make a study of that he will disdain such a person and will assume his likeness if at all for a moment only when he is performing some good action at other times he will be ashamed to play a part which he has never practised nor will he like to fashion and frame himself after the baser models he feels the employment of such an art unless in jest to be beneath him and his mind revolts at it so i should expect he replied then he will adopt a mode of narration such as we have illustrated out of homer that is to say his style will be both imitative and narrative but there will be very little of the former and a great deal of the latter do you agree certainly he said that is the model which such a speaker must necessarily take but there is another sort of character who will narrate anything and the worse he is the more unscrupulous he will be nothing will be too bad for him and he will be ready to imitate anything not as a joke but in right good earnest and before a large company as i was just now saying he will attempt to represent the roll of thunder the noise of wind and hail or the creaking of wheels and pulleys and the various sounds of flutes pipes trumpets and all sorts of instruments he will bark like a dog bleat like a sheep or crow like a cock his entire art will consist in imitation of voice and gesture and there will be very little narration that he said will be his mode of speaking these then are the two kinds of style yes and you would agree with me in saying that one of them is simple and has but slight changes and if the harmony and rhythm are also chosen for their simplicity the result is that the speaker if he speaks correctly is always pretty much the same in style and he will keep within the limits of a single harmony for the changes are not great and in like manner he will make use of nearly the same rhythm that is quite true he said whereas the other requires all sorts of harmonies and all sorts of rhythms if the music and the style are to correspond because the style has all sorts of changes that is also perfectly true he replied and do not the two styles or the mixture of the two comprehend all poetry and every form of expression in words no one can say anything except in one or other of them or in both together they include all he said and shall we receive into our state all the three styles or one only of the two unmixed styles or would you include the mixed 
I should prefer only to admit the pure imitator of virtue. Yes, I said, Adamantus, but the mixed style is also very charming, and indeed the pantomimic, which is the opposite of the one chosen by you, is the most popular style with children and their attendants, and with the world in general. I do not deny it, but I suppose you would argue that such a style is unsuitable to our state, in which human nature is not twofold or manifold, for one man plays one part only. Yes, quite unsuitable. And this is the reason why in our state, and in our state only, we shall find a shoemaker to be a shoemaker, and not a pilot also, and a husbandman to be a husbandman, and not a die-cast also, and a soldier a soldier, and not a traitor also, and the same throughout. True, he said. And therefore, when any one of these patomimic gentlemen, who are so clever that they can imitate anything, comes to us and makes a proposal to exhibit himself and his poetry, we will fall down and worship him as a sweet and holy and wonderful being, but we must also inform him that in our state such as he are not permitted to exist, the law will not allow them. And so, when we have anointed him with myrrh and set a garland of wool upon his head, we shall send him away to another city, for we mean to employ for our soul's health the rougher and severer poet or storyteller, who will imitate the style of the virtuous only, and will follow those models which we prescribed at first when we began the education of our soldiers. We certainly will, he said, if we have the power. Then now, my friend, I said, that part of music or literary education which relates to the story or myth may be considered to be finished, for the matter and manner have both been discussed. I think so too, he said. End of Book Three, Part One Book Three, Part Two of the Republic by Plato. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bobnifeld. Next in order will follow melody and song. That is obvious. Every one can see already what we ought to say about them if we are to be consistent with ourselves. I fear," said Glaucon, laughing, "that the word every one hardly includes me." for I cannot at the moment say what they should be, though I may guess. At any rate you can tell that a song or ode has three parts, the words, the melody, and the rhythm, that degree of knowledge I may presuppose. Yes, he said, so much as that you may. And as for the words, there will surely be no difference between words which are and which are not set to music. Both will conform to the same laws, and these have been already determined by us, yes, and the melody and rhythm will depend upon the words, certainly. We were saying, when we spoke of the subject matter, that we had no need of lamentation and strains of sorrow. True. And which are the harmonies expressive of sorrow? You are musical and can tell me. The harmonics which you mean are the mixed or tenor Lydian, and the full-toned or bass Lydian, and such like. These, then, I said, must be banished, even to women who have a character to maintain they are of no use, and much less to men. Certainly. 
in the next place drunkenness and softness and indolence are utterly unbecoming the character of our guardians utterly unbecoming and which are the soft or drinking harmonies the ionian he replied and the lydian they are termed relaxed well and are these of any military use quite the reverse he replied and if so the dorian and the phrygian are the only ones which you have left i answered of the harmonies i know nothing but i want to have one warlike to sound the note or accent which a brave man utters in the hour of danger and stern resolve or when his cause is failing and he is going to wounds or death or is overtaken by some evil and at every such crisis meets the blows of fortune with firm step and a determination to endure and another to be used by him in times of peace and freedom of action when there is no pressure of necessity and he is seeking to persuade god by prayer or man by instruction and admonition or on the other hand when he is expressing his willingness to yield to persuasion or entreaty or admonition and which presents him when by prudent conduct he has attained his end not carried away by his success but acting moderately and wisely under the circumstances and acquiescing in the event these two harmonies i ask you to leave the strain of necessity the strain of courage and the strain of temperance these i say leave and these he replied are the dorian and phrygian harmonies of which i was just now speaking then i said if these and these only are to be used in our songs and melodies we shall not want multiplicity of notes or panharmonic scale i suppose not then we shall not maintain the artificers of lyres with three corners and complex scales or the makers of any other many-stringed curiously harmonized instruments certainly not but what do you say to flute-makers and flute-players would you admit them into our state when they reflect that in this composite use of harmony the flute is worse than all the stringed instruments put together even the panharmonic music is only an imitation of the flute clearly not there remain then only the lyre and the harp for use in the city and the shepherds may have a pipe in the country that is surely the conclusion to be drawn from the argument the preferring of apollo and his instruments is not at all strange i said not at all he replied and so by the dog of egypt we have been unconsciously purging the state which not long ago we termed luxurious and we have done wisely he replied then let us now finish the purgation i said next in order to harmonies rhythms will naturally follow and they should be subject to the same rules for we ought not to seek out complex systems of metre or metres of every kind but rather to discover what rhythms are the expressions of a courageous and harmonious life and when we have found them we shall adapt the foot and the melody to words having a like spirit not the words to the foot and the melody to say what these rhythms are will be your duty you must teach me then as you have already taught me the harmonics but indeed he replied i cannot tell you i only know that there are some three principles of rhythm out of which metrical systems are framed just as in sounds there are four notes that is the four notes of the tetrachord out of which all the harmonies are composed 
that is an observation which i have made but but of what sort of lives they are severally the imitations i am unable to say then i said we must take damon into our councils and he will tell us what rhythms are expressive of meanness or insolence or fury or other unworthiness and what are to be reserved for the expression of opposite feelings and i think that i have an indistinct recollection of his mentioning a complex cretic rhythm also a dactylic or heroic and he arranged them in some manner which i do not quite understand making the rhythms equal in the rise and fall of the foot long and short alternating and unless i am mistaken he spoke of an iambic as well as a trochaic rhythm and assigned to them short and long quantities also in some cases he appeared to praise or censure the movement of the foot quite as much as the rhythm or perhaps a combination of the two for i am not certain what he meant these matters however as i was saying had better be deferred to damon himself for the analysis of the subject would be difficult you know rather so i should say but there is no difficulty in seeing that grace or the absence of grace is an effect of good or bad rhythm not at all and also that good and bad rhythm naturally assimilate to a good and bad style and that harmony and discord in like manner follow style for our principle is that rhythm and harmony are regulated by the words and not the words by them just so he said they should follow the words and will not the words and the character of the style depend on the temper of the soul yes and everything else on the style yes then beauty of style and harmony and grace and good rhythm depend on simplicity i mean the true simplicity of a rightly and nobly ordered mind and character not that other simplicity which is only a euphemism for folly very true he replied and if our youth are to do their work in life must they not make these graces and harmonies their perpetual aim they must and surely the art of the painter and every other creative and constructive art are full of them weaving embroidery architecture and every kind of manufacture also nature animal and vegetable in all of them there is a grace or the absence of grace and ugliness and discord and inharmonious motion are nearly allied to ill words and ill nature as grace and harmony are the twin sisters of goodness and virtue and bear their likeness that is quite true he said but shall our superintendents go no further and are the poets only to be required by us to express the image of the good in their works on pain if they do anything else of expulsion from our state or is the same control to be extended to the other artists and are they also to be prohibited from exhibiting the opposite forms of vice and intemperance and meanness and indecency in sculpture and building and the other creative arts and is he who cannot conform to this rule of ours to be prevented from practising his art in our state lest the taste of our citizens be corrupted by him we would not have our guardians grow up amid images of moral deformity as in some noxious pasture and there browse and feed upon many a baneful herb and flower day by day little by little until they silently gather a festering mass of corruption in their own soul 
let our artists rather be those who are gifted to discern the true nature of the beautiful and graceful then will our youth dwell in a land of wealth and amid fair sights and sounds and receive the good in everything and beauty the affluence of fair works shall flow into the eye and ear like a health-giving breeze from a purer region and insensibly draw the soul from earliest years into likeness and sympathy with the beauty of reason there can be no nobler training than that he replied and therefore i said glaucon musical training is a more potent instrument than any other because rhythm and harmony find their way into the inward places of the soul on which they mightily fasten imparting grace and making the soul of him who is rightly educated graceful or of him who is ill-educated ungraceful and also because he who has received this true education of the inner being will most shrewdly perceive omissions or faults in art and nature and with a true taste while he praises and rejoices over and receives into his soul the good and becomes noble and good he will justly blame and hate the bad now in the days of his youth even before he is able to know the reason why and when reason comes he will recognize and salute the friend with whom his education has made him long familiar yes he said i quite agree with you in thinking that our youth should be trained in music and on the grounds which you mention just as in learning to read i said we were satisfied when we knew the letters of the alphabet which are very few in all their recurring sizes and combinations not slighting them as unimportant whether they occupy a space large or small but everywhere eager to make them out and not thinking ourselves perfect in the art of reading until we recognize them wherever they are found true or as we recognize the reflection of letters in the water or in a mirror only when we know the letters themselves the same art and study giving us the knowledge of both exactly even so as i maintain neither we nor our guardians whom we have to educate can ever become musical until we and they know the essential forms of temperance courage liberality magnificence and their kindred as well as the contrary forms in all their combinations and can recognize them and their images wherever they are found not slighting them either in small things or great but believing them all to be within the sphere of what art and study most assuredly and when a beautiful soul harmonizes with a beautiful form and the two are cast in one mould that will be the fairest of sights to him who has an eye to see it the fairest indeed and the fairest is also the loveliest that may be assumed and the man who has the spirit of harmony will be most in love with the loveliest but he will not love him who is of an inharmonious soul that is true he replied if the deficiency be in his soul but if there be any merely bodily defect in another he will be patient of it and will love all the same i perceive i said that you have or have had experiences of this sort and i agree but let me ask you another question has excess of pleasure any affinity to temperance how can that be he replied pleasure deprives a man of the use of his faculties quite as much as pain or any affinity to virtue in general none whatever any affinity to wantonness and intemperance yes the greatest 
and is there any greater or keener pleasure than that of sensual love no nor a madder whereas true love is a love of beauty and order temperate and temperate and harmonious quite true he said then no intemperance or madness should be allowed to approach true love well, certainly not then mad or intemperate pleasure must never be allowed to come near the lover and his beloved neither of them can have any part in it if their love is of the right sort no indeed socrates it must never come near them then i suppose that in the city which we are founding you could make a law to the effect that a friend should use no other familiarity to his love than a father would use to his son and then only for a noble purpose and he must first have the other's consent and this rule is to limit him in all his intercourse and he is never to be seen going further or if he exceeds he is to be deemed guilty of coarseness and bad taste i quite agree he said this much of music which makes a fair ending for what should be the end of music if not the love of beauty i agree he said after music comes gymnastic in which our youth are next to be trained certainly gymnastic as well as music should begin in early years the training in it should be careful and should continue through life now my belief is and this is a matter upon which i should like to have your opinion in confirmation of my own but my own belief is not that the good body by any bodily excellence improves the soul but on the contrary that the good soul by her own excellence improves the body as far as this may be possible what do you say yes i agree then to the mind when adequately trained we shall be right in handing over the more particular care of the body and in order to avoid prolixity we will now only give the general outlines of the subject very good that they must abstain from intoxication has been already remarked by us for of all persons a guardian should be the last to get drunk and not know where in the world he is yes he said that a guardian should require another guardian to take care of him is ridiculous indeed but next what shall we say of their food for the men are in training for the great contest of all are they not yes he said and will the habit of body of our ordinary athletes be suited to them well, why not i am afraid i said that a habit of body such as they have is but a sleepy sort of thing and rather perilous to health do you not observe that these athletes sleep away their lives and are liable to most dangerous illnesses if they depart in ever so slight a degree from their customary regimen yes i do then i said a finer sort of training will be required for our warrior athletes who are to be like wakeful dogs and to see and hear with the utmost keenness amid the many changes of water and also of food of summer heat and winter cold which they will have to endure when on a campaign they must be liable to break down in health that is my view the really excellent gymnastic is twin sister of that simple music which we were just now describing how so why i conceive that there is a gymnastic which like our music is simple and good and especially the military gymnastic what do you mean my meaning may be learned from homer he you know feeds his heroes at their feasts when they are campaigning on soldiers fare 
They have no fish, although they are on the shores of the Hellespont, and they are not allowed boiled meats, but only roast, which is the food most convenient for soldiers, requiring only that they should light a fire, and not involving the trouble of carrying about pots and pans. True. And I can hardly be mistaken in saying that sweet sauces are nowhere mentioned in Homer. In proscribing them, however, he is not singular. All professional athletes are well aware that a man who is to be in good condition should take nothing of the kind. Yes, he said, and knowing this they are quite right in not taking them. Then you would not approve of the Syracusan dinners, and the refinements of Sicilian cookery? I think not. Nor, if a man is to be in condition, would you allow him to have a Corinthian girl as his fair friend? Certainly not. Neither would you approve of the delicacies, as they are thought, of Athenian confectionery? Certainly not. All such feeding and living may be rightly compared by us to melody and song composed in the panharmonic style and in all the rhythms. Exactly. There complexity engendered license, and here disease. Whereas simplicity in music was the parent of temperance in the soul, and simplicity in gymnastic of health in the body. Most true, he said. But when intemperance and diseases multiply in a state, halls of justice and medicine are always being opened, and the arts of the doctor and the lawyer give themselves airs, finding how keen is the interest which not only the slaves but the freemen of the city take about them. Of course. And yet, what greater proof can there be of a bad and disgraceful state of education than this, that not only artisans and the meaner sort of people need the skill of first-rate physicians and judges, but also those who would profess to have had a liberal education? Is it not disgraceful, and a great sign of want of good breeding, that a man should have to go abroad for his law and physic because he has none of his own at home, and must therefore surrender himself into the hands of other men whom he makes lords and judges over him? Of all things, he said, the most disgraceful. Would you say most, I replied, when you consider that there is a further stage of the evil, in which a man is not only a lifelong litigant, passing all his days in the courts, either as plaintiff or defendant, but is actually led by his bad taste to pride himself on his litigiousness, he imagines that he is a master of dishonesty, able to take every crooked turn, and wriggle into and out of every hole, bending like a withy, and getting out of the way of justice. And all for what? In order to gain small points not worth mentioning, he not knowing that so to order his life as to be able to do without a napping judge is a far higher and nobler sort of thing. Is not that still more disgraceful? Yes he said, that is still more disgraceful. Well, I said, and to require the help of medicine, not when a wound has to be cured, or on occasion of an epidemic, but just because, by indolence and a habit of life such as we have been describing, men fill themselves with waters and winds as if their bodies were a marsh, compelling the ingenious sons of Asclepius to find more names for diseases, such as flatulence and catarrh. Is not this, too, a disgrace? Yes, he said. They do certainly give very strange and new-fangled names to diseases. Yes, I said, and I do not believe that there were any such diseases in the days of Asclepius. 
and this i infer from the circumstance that the hero eurypylus after he has been wounded in homer drinks a posset of premnian wine well besprinkled with barley meal and grated cheese which are certainly inflammatory and yet the sons of asclepius who were at the trojan war do not blame the damsel who gives him the drink or rebuke patroclus who is treating his case well he said that was surely an extraordinary drink to be given to a person in his condition not so extraordinary i replied if you bear in mind that in former days as is commonly said before the time of herodicus the guild of asclepius did not practise our present system of medicine which may be said to educate diseases but herodicus being a trainer and himself of a sickly constitution by a combination of training and doctoring found out a way of torturing first and chiefly himself and secondly the rest of the world how was that he said by the intervention of lingering death for he had a mortal disease which he perpetually tended and as recovery was out of the question he passed his entire life as a valetudinarian he could do nothing but attend upon himself and he was in constant torment whenever he departed in anything from his usual regimen and so dying hard by the help of science he struggled on to old age a rare reward for his skill yes i said a reward which a man might fairly expect who never understood that if asclepius did not instruct his descendants in valetudinarian hearts the omission arose not from ignorance or inexperience of such a branch of medicine but because he knew that in all well-ordered states every individual has an occupation to which he must attend and has therefore no leisure to spend in continually being ill this we remark in the case of the artisan but ludicrously enough do not apply the same rule to people of the richer sort how do you mean he said i mean this when a carpenter is ill he asks the physician for a rough and ready cure an emetic or purge or a cautery or the knife these are his remedies and if someone prescribes for him a course of dietetics and tells him that he must swathe and swaddle his head and all that sort of thing he replies at once that he has no time to be ill and that he sees no good in a life which is spent in nursing his disease to the neglect of his customary employment and therefore bidding good-bye to this sort of physician he resumes his ordinary habits and either gets well and lives and does his business or if his constitution fails he dies and has no more trouble yes he said and a man in his condition of life ought to use the art of medicine thus far only has he not i said an occupation and what profit would there be in his life if he were deprived of his occupation quite true he said but with a rich man this is otherwise of him we do not say that he has any specially appointed work which he must perform if he would live he is generally supposed to have nothing to do then you have heard of the saying of Phocyclides that as soon as a man has a livelihood he should practise virtue nay he said i think that he had better begin somewhat sooner let us not have a dispute with him about this i said but rather ask ourselves is the practice of virtue obligatory on the rich man or can he live without it and if obligatory on him then let us raise a further question whether this dieting of disorders which is an impediment to the application of the mind in carpentering and the mechanical arts 
does not equally stand in the way of the sentiment of Phocyclides. Of that, he replied, there can be no doubt. Such excessive care of the body, when carried beyond the rules of gymnastic, is, is most inimical to the practice of virtue. Yes, indeed, I replied, and equally incompatible with the management of a house, an army, or an office of state, and what is most important of all, irreconcilable with any kind of study or thought or self-reflection, there is a constant suspicion that headache and giddiness are to be ascribed to philosophy, and hence all practising or making trial of virtue in the higher sense is absolutely stopped, for a man is always fancying that he is being made ill, and is in constant anxiety about the state of his body. Yes, likely enough. And therefore our politic Asclepius may be supposed to have exhibited the power of his art only to persons who, being generally of healthy constitution and habits of life, had a definite ailment, such as those he cured by purges and operations, and bade them live as usual, herein consulting the interests of the state. But bodies which disease had penetrated through and through he would not have attempted to cure by gradual processes of evacuation and infusion. He did not want to lengthen out good-for-nothing lives, or to have weak fathers begetting weaker sons. If a man was not able to live in the ordinary way, he had no business to cure him, for such a cure would have been of no use either to himself or to the state. Then, he said, you regard Asclepius as a statesman. Clearly, and his character is further illustrated by his sons. Note that they were heroes in the days of old, and practised the medicines of which I am speaking at the siege of Troy. You will remember how, when Pandarus wounded Menelaus, they sucked the blood out of the wound and sprinkled soothing remedies. But they never prescribed what the patient was afterwards to eat or drink in the case of Menelaus, any more than in the case of Eurypylus. The remedies, as they conceived, were enough to heal any man who before he was wounded was healthy and regular in his habits, and even though he did happen to drink a posset of Pramnian wine, he might get well all the same. But they would have nothing to do with unhealthy and intemperate subjects, whose lives were of no use either to themselves or others. The art of medicine was not designed for their good, and though they were as rich as Midas, the sons of Asclepius would have declined to attend them. They were very acute persons, those sons of Asclepius. Naturally so, I replied. Nevertheless, the tragedians and Pindar, disobeying our behests, although they acknowledge that Asclepius was the son of Apollo, say also that he was bribed into healing a rich man who was at the point of death, and for this reason he was struck by lightning. But we, in accordance with the principle already affirmed by us, will not believe them when they tell us both. If he was the son of a god, we maintain that he was not avaricious, or if he was avaricious, he was not the son of a god. All that, Socrates, is excellent, but I should like to put a question to you. Ought there not to be good physicians in a state, and are not the best those who have treated the greatest number of constitutions good or bad, and are not the best judges in like manner those who are acquainted with all sorts of moral natures? Yes, I said, I too would have good judges and good physicians. But do you know whom I think good? Will you tell me? I will, if I can. 
let me however note that in the same question you join two things which are not the same how so he asked why i said you join physicians and judges now the most skilful physicians are those who from their youth upwards have combined with the knowledge of their art the greatest experience of disease they had better not be robust in health and should have had all manner of diseases in their own persons for the body as i conceive is not the instrument with which they cure the body in that case we could not allow them ever to be or to have been sickly but they cure the body with the mind and the mind which has become and is sick can cure nothing that is very true he said but with the judge it is otherwise since he governs mind by mind he ought not therefore to have been trained among vicious minds and to have associated with them from youth upwards and to have gone through the whole calendar of crime only in order that he may quickly infer the crimes of others as he might their bodily diseases from his own self-consciousness the honourable mind which is to form a healthy judgment should have had no experience or contamination of evil habits when young and this is the reason why in youth good men often appear to be simple and are easily practised upon by the dishonest because they have no examples of what evil is in their own souls yes he said they are far too apt to be deceived therefore i said the judge should not be young he should have learned to know evil not from his own soul but from late and long observation of the nature of evil in others knowledge should be his guide not personal experience yes he said that is the ideal of a judge yes i replied and he will be a good man which is my answer to your question for he is good who has a good soul but the cunning and suspicious nature of which we spoke he who has committed many crimes and fancies himself to be a master in wickedness when he is amongst his fellows is wonderful in the precautions which he takes because he judges of them by himself but when he gets into the company of men of virtue who have the experience of age he appears to be a fool again owing to his unseasonable suspicions he cannot recognize an honest man because he has no pattern of honesty in himself and at the same time as the bad are more numerous than the good and he meets with them oftener he thinks himself and is by others thought to be rather wise than foolish most true he said then the good and wise judge whom we are seeking is not this man but the other for vice cannot know virtue too but a virtuous nature educated by time will acquire a knowledge both of virtue and vice the virtuous and not the vicious man has wisdom in my opinion and in mine also this is the state of medicine and this is the sort of law which you will sanction in your state they will minister to better natures giving health both of soul and of body but those who are diseased in their bodies they will leave to die and the corrupt and incurable souls they will put an end to themselves that is clearly the best thing both for the patients and for the state and thus our youth having been educated only in that simple music which as we said inspires temperance will be reluctant to go to law clearly and the musician who keeping the same track is content to practise the simple gymnastic will have nothing to do with medicine unless in some extreme case that i quite believe 
the very exercises and tolls which he undergoes are intended to stimulate the spirited element of his nature and not to increase his strength he will not like common athletes use exercise and regimen to develop his muscles very right he said neither are the two arts of music and gymnastic really designed as is often supposed the one for the training of the soul the other for the training of the body what then is the real object of them i believe i said that the teachers of both have in view chiefly the improvement of the soul how can that be he asked did you never observe i said the effect on the mind itself of exclusive devotion to gymnastic or the opposite effect of an exclusive devotion to music in what way shown he said the one producing a temper of hardness and ferocity the other of softness and effeminacy i replied yes he said i am quite aware that the mere athlete becomes too much of a savage and that the mere musician is melted and softened beyond what is good for him yet surely i said this ferocity only comes from spirit which if rightly educated would give courage but if too much intensified is liable to become hard and brutal that i quite think on the other hand the philosopher will have the quality of gentleness and this also when too much indulged will turn to softness but if educated rightly will be gentle and moderate true and in our opinion the guardians ought to have both these qualities assuredly and both should be in harmony beyond a question and the harmonious soul is both temperate and courageous yes and the inharmonious is cowardly and boorish very true and when a man allows music to play upon him and to pour into his soul through the funnel of his ears those sweet and soft and melancholy airs of which we were just now speaking and his whole life is passed in warbling and the delights of a song in the first stage of the process the passion or spirit which is in him is tempered like iron and made useful instead of brittle and useless but if he carries on the softening and soothing process in the next stage he begins to melt and waste until he has wasted away his spirit and cut out the sinews of his soul and he becomes a feeble warrior very true if the element of spirit is naturally weak in him the change is speedily accomplished but if he have a good deal then the power of music weakening the spirit renders him excitable on the least provocation he flames up at once and is speedily extinguished instead of having spirit he grows irritable and passionate and is quite impracticable exactly and so in gymnastics if a man takes violent exercise and is a great feeder and the reverse of a great student of music and philosophy at first the high condition of his body fills him with pride and spirit and he becomes twice the man that he was certainly and what happens if he do nothing else and holds no converse with the muses does not even that intelligence which there may be in him having no taste of any sort of learning or inquiry or thought or culture grow feeble and dull and blind his mind never waking up or receiving nourishment and his senses not being purged of their mists true he said and he ends by becoming a hater of philosophy uncivilized never using the weapons of persuasion he is like a wild beast all violence and fierceness 
and knows no other way of dealing, and he lives in all ignorance and evil conditions, and has no sense of propriety and grace. That is quite true, he said. And as there are two principles of human nature, one the spirited and the other philosophical, some god, as I should say, has given mankind two arts answering to them, and only indirectly to the soul and the body, in order that these two principles, like the strings of an instrument, may be relaxed or drawn tighter until they are duly harmonized. That appears to be the intention. And he who mingles music with gymnastic in the fairest proportions, and best attempers them to the soul, may be rightly called the true musician and harmonist in a far higher sense than the tuner of the strings. You are quite right, Socrates. And such a presiding genius will always be required in our state if the government is to last. Yes, he will be absolutely necessary. Such, then, are our principles of nurture and education. Where would be the use of going into further details about the dances of our citizens, or about the hunting and coursing, their gymnastic and equestrian contests? For these all follow the general principle, and having found that, we shall have no difficulty in discovering them. I dare say that there will be no difficulty. Very good, I said. But then, what is the next question? Must we not ask who are to be the rulers and whose subjects? Certainly. There can be no doubt that the elder must rule the younger, clearly, and that the best of these must rule. That is also clear. Now, are not the best husbandmen those who are most devoted to husbandry? Yes. And as we are to have the best of guardians for our city, must they not be those who have the most the character of guardians? Yes. And to this end they ought to be wise and efficient, and to have a special care of the state? True. And a man will be most likely to care about that which he loves, to be sure, and he will be most likely to love that which he regards as having the same interests with himself, and that of which the good or evil fortune is supposed by him at any time most to affect his own? Very true, he replied. Then there must be a selection. Let us note among the guardians those who in their whole life show the greatest eagerness to do what is for the good of their country, and the greatest repugnance to do what is against her interests. Those are the right men and they will have to be watched at every age, in order that we may see whether they preserve their resolution, and never, under the influence either of force or enchantment, forget or cast off their sense of duty to the state. How cast off? he said. I will explain to you, I replied. A resolution may go out of a man's mind either with his will or against his will, with his will when he gets rid of a falsehood and learns better, against his will whenever he is deprived of a truth. I understand, he said, the willing loss of a resolution, the meaning of the unwilling I have yet to learn. Why, I said, do you not see that men are unwillingly deprived of a good and willingly of an evil? Is not to have lost the truth an evil, and to possess the truth a good? And you would agree that to conceive things as they are is to possess the truth? Yes, he replied. I agree with you in thinking that mankind are deprived of truth against their will. And is not this involuntary deprivation caused either by theft or force or enchantment? Still, he replied, I do not understand you. 
I fear that I must have been talking darkly, like the tragedians. I only mean that some men are changed by persuasion, and that others forget. Argument steals away the hearts of one class and time of the other, Then this I call theft. Now you understand me? Yes. Those again who are forced are those whom the violence of some pain or grief compels to change their opinion. I understand, he said, and you are quite right. And you would also acknowledge that the enchanted are those who change their minds either under the softer influence of pleasure or the sterner influence of fear? Yes, he said, everything that deceives may be said to enchant. Therefore, as I was just now saying, we must inquire who are the best guardians of their own conviction that what they think the interest of the state is to be the rule of their lives. We must watch them from their youth upwards, and make them perform actions in which they are most likely to forget or to be deceived. And he who remembers and is not deceived is to be selected, and he who fails in the trial is to be rejected. That will be the way. Yes. And there should also be toils and pains and, and conflicts prescribed for them, in which they will be made to give further proof of the same qualities. Very right, he replied. And then, I said, we must try them with enchantments. That is the third sort of test, and see what will be their behavior. Like those who take colts amid noise and tumults, to see if they are of a timid nature, so must we take our youth amid terrors of some kind, and again pass them into pleasures, and prove them more thoroughly than gold is proved in a furnace, that we may discover whether they are armed against all enchantments, and of a noble bearing always, good guardians of themselves and of the music which they have learned, and retaining under all circumstances a rhythmical and harmonious nature, such as will be most serviceable to the individual and to the state. And he who at every age, as boy and youth, and in mature life, has come out of the trial victorious and pure, shall be appointed a ruler and guardian of the state. He shall be honoured in life and death, and shall receive sepulture and other memorials of honour, the greatest that we have to give. But him who fails we must reject. I am inclined to think that this is the sort of way in which our rulers and guardians should be chosen and appointed. I speak generally, and not with any pretension to exactness. And speaking generally, I agree with you, he said. And perhaps the word guardian in the fullest sense ought to be applied to this higher class only, who preserve us against foreign enemies and maintain peace among our citizens at home, that the one may not have the will or the others the power to harm us. The young men whom we before called guardians may be more properly designated auxiliaries and supporters of the principles of the rulers. I agree with you, he said. How, then, may we devise one of these needful falsehoods of which we lately spoke, just one royal lie which may deceive the rulers, if that be possible, and at any rate the rest of the city? What sort of lie? he said. Nothing new, I replied. Only an old Phoenician tale of what has often occurred before now in other places, as the poets say and have made the world believe, though not in our time. And I do not know whether such an event could ever happen again, or could now even be made probable, if it did. How your words seem to hesitate on your lips. You will not wonder, I replied, at my hesitation when you have heard. 
speak he said and fear not well then i will speak although i really know not how to look you in the face or in what words to utter the audacious fiction which i propose to communicate gradually first to the rulers then to the soldiers and lastly to the people they are to be told that their youth was a dream and the education and training which they received from us an appearance only in reality during all that time they were being formed and fed in the womb of the earth where they themselves and their arms and appurtenances were manufactured when they were completed the earth their mother sent them up and so their country being their mother and also their nurse they were bound to advise for her good and to defend her against attacks and her citizens they are to regard as children of the earth and their own brothers you had good reason he said to be ashamed of the lie which you were going to tell true i replied but there is more coming i have only told you half citizens we shall say to them in our tale you are brothers yet god has framed you differently some of you have the power of command and in the composition of these he has mingled gold wherefore also they have the greatest honour others he has made of silver to be auxiliaries others again who are to be husbandmen and craftsmen he has composed of brass and iron and the species will generally be preserved in the children but as all are of the same original stock a golden parent will sometimes have a silver son or a silver parent a golden son and god proclaims as a first principle to the rulers and above all else that there is nothing which they should so anxiously guard or of which they are to be such good guardians as the purity of the race they should observe what elements mingle in their offspring for if the son of a golden or silver parent has an admixture of brass and iron then nature orders a transposition of ranks and the eye of the ruler must not be pitiful towards the child because he has to descend in the scale and become a husbandman or artisan just as there may be sons of artisans who have an admixture of gold or silver in them are raised to honour and become guardians or auxiliaries for an oracle says that when a man of brass or iron guards the state it will be destroyed such is the tale is there any possibility of making our citizens believe in it not in the present generation he replied there is no way of accomplishing this but their sons may be made to believe in the tale and their sons sons and posterity after them i see the difficulty i replied yet the fostering of such a belief will make them care more for the city and for one another enough however of the fiction which may now fly abroad upon the wings of rumour while we arm our earth-born heroes and lead them forth under the command of their rulers let them look round and select a spot whence they can best suppress insurrection if any prove refractory within and also defend themselves against enemies who like wolves may come down on the fold from without there let them encamp and when they have encamped let them sacrifice to the proper gods and prepare their dwellings just so he said and their dwellings must be such as will shield them against the cold of winter and the heat of summer i suppose you mean houses he replied but yes i said but they must be houses of soldiers and not of shopkeepers what is the difference he said that i will endeavour to explain i replied 
to keep watchdogs who from want of discipline or hunger or some evil habit or other would turn upon the sheep and worry them and behave not like dogs but wolves would be a foul and monstrous thing in a shepherd truly monstrous he said and therefore every care must be taken that our auxiliaries being stronger than our citizens may not grow to be too much for them and become savage tyrants instead of friends and allies yes great care should be taken and would not a really good education furnish the best safeguard but they are well educated already he replied i cannot be so confident my dear glaucon i said i am much more certain that they ought to be and that true education whatever that may be will have the greatest tendency to civilize and humanize them in their relations to one another and to those who are under their protection very true he replied not only their education but their habitations and all that belongs to them should be such as will neither impair their virtue as guardians nor tempt them to prey upon the other citizens any man of sense must acknowledge that he must then now let us consider what will be their way of life if they are to realize our idea of them in the first place none of them should have any property of his own beyond what is absolutely necessary neither should they have a private house or store closed against any one who has a mind to enter their provisions should be only such as are required by trained warriors who are men of temperance and courage they should agree to receive from the citizens a fixed rate of pay enough to meet the expenses of the year and no more and they will go to mess and live together like soldiers in a camp gold and silver we will tell them that they have from god the diviner metal is the diviner metal is within them and they have therefore no need of the dross which is current among men and ought not to pollute the divine by any such earthly admixture for that commoner metal has been the source of many unholy deeds but their own is undefiled and they alone of all the citizens may not touch or handle silver or gold or be under the same roof with them or wear them or drink from them and this will be their salvation and they will be the saviors of the state but should they ever acquire homes or lands or monies of their own they will become housekeepers and husbandmen instead of guardians enemies and tyrants instead of allies of the other citizens hating and being hated plotting and being plotted against they will pass their whole life in much greater terror of internal rather than external enemies and the hour of ruin both to themselves and to the rest of the state will be at hand for all which reasons may we not say that thus shall our state be ordered and that these shall be the regulations appointed by us for guardians concerning their houses and all their matters yes said glaucon end of book three everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars limited time only price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price Ba da ba ba ba